arrested and defeated through the work and the power of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we gather this morning, would you just walk with us through the scripture? Would you reveal to us the truth of your word? Father, would you be blessed by our worship and would you equip us to leave this place today and to share the good news that death not only has been arrested, but has been defeated in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, bless us this day in Christ's holy name. Please be seated this morning. Stay for a while. Stay for a while. I, uh, I haven't had a chance to speak in four weeks, so for the next two hours, I plan to get my words out. <laughs> Some of you are catching on to that. I heard no amens, by the way. I visited a friend's church last week. I like to do that when I take some vacation time and just worship. And uh, not that I don't get to worship here, but I enjoy just not having to work. <laughs> Um, and, and try to worship, and I was sitting in the very back, back there, a little bigger than this, and the pastor's secretary that had been there for 30 years uh, was sitting in front of me, and he's thanking her for her service. She's retired. She's moving to Mississippi, um, and uh, he's inviting the congregation to come for a reception next week, and then he says, I don't normally do this, but Pastor Davis, uh, would you come up here and pray for us this morning? And I'm like, man, I'm on vacation. You don't pray on vacation. Uh, and as I, as I walked up to the stage, he says, now you're still at Common Ground Community Church, aren't you? And I'm like, well, I, I was when I left, um, but I hadn't heard Lance's sermon yet. So I'm, 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 I listened to it this week. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm replaceable, like, like not just like possibly, but replaceable. So uh, the last couple of weeks has been a great reminder of, of that. Uh, and I'm grateful for all of the guys who have filled in the last couple of weeks to give me some time to to uh, work on some other things and just rest my mind a little bit. So, uh, We've been going through a series in Romans called uh, Romans Road Trip, and we talk about the different elements of road trips and the Twin Cities and Sin City. And uh, this week I want to talk to you a little bit about freedom of the open road. Uh, some of us are old enough uh, to know uh, that in May 1968 in their, their uh, self-titled album, one of the greatest road trip songs of all time was released. Before I tell you the name of this song, it was, it's, it's, it was written by, and you may know this, we'll see, we'll test your knowledge, it was written by a man named Mars Bonfire, which that's just an awesome name anyway. I doubt his mother gave him that name, but uh, it's still kind of a cool name. But, but, but he wrote this song, and it actually was in protest to the Vietnam War, and there's a lot of, of ideals about what the song's about, and, and in an interview, he actually said that this song was about helicopter pilots in Vietnam who were amongst uh, some of the most vulnerable because as they would uh, drop troops in or pick troops up, uh, they were just sitting ducks. Um, and he, he spoke of the mindset of a helicopter pilot to have to do that kind of job. And, and so in their self-titled album, 1968, which became one of their greatest hits ever, Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild was launched upon society. And, and I don't know about you, but when I hear that song, all I really want to do is roll down the windows and drive really, really fast. I, I mean, I do. I always have. Like, I had a little Chevy S10 uh, when I was growing up, and I, I grew up in, in East Texas, and we had uh, contemporary gospel, lots of country, and classic rock. There was none of this alternative stuff. I think we actually, East Texans, termed alternative because it was alternative to good music, right? Uh, we had classic rock, and Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild would come on, and you crank that thing up, and you, you roll, literally roll down the windows. Y'all remember that? And you drive as fast as you can, right? Uh, I, that, I just, it's this freedom of the open road that just gets those juices flowing. And in the song, there's some really interesting lyrics in there. Uh, you know, get your motor running, head out on the highway, looking for adventure and whatever comes our way, right? Darling, I got to make it happen. Take, your, take the world a love embrace. Fire all of your guns at once and explode into space, right? And so there's all these different connotations of what that actually means. I don't know. I'm not here to tell you about that. But, but then the refrain kind of comes in that, that's really interesting. It says, like a true nature's child, we were born, born to be wild. And there is such honest theology in that one line this morning that I kind of want to explore a little bit. And we're going to explore that just a little bit. Now, we're going to start in Romans chapter 6. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to read 6, 7, and 8. And those three chapters ought to be studied together. They're, they complete a thought, actually, that comes out of the end of Romans chapter 5, 
But, but Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome, and I, I, want you to, I want you to read this in a little different context than perhaps you have in the past. He's writing this letter to the church at Rome in anticipation of the questions and the challenges and the reasons they can find to not follow his instructions. There's, there's, there's this sense of, I know what you idiots are about to say. Before you say it, let me go ahead and give you the answer to a question that you have, have so far just kept in your mind and have failed to get it out of your lips, or at least on paper. And so I'm just going to preemptively answer these things. And Paul, I think Paul actually knew the song, right? I don't know how he knew it, but he says, I know the true nature's child in you is to rebel against God. And so I'm going to explain this to you in such a way that before you ask the question, maybe, just maybe, you'll already have the answer, and you'll stop before you get that far, and things will be a lot better for you. And so this morning, I, 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 I like Paul, I want to speak to believers in the room especially. I, I really think it's important that when we read Scripture, particularly something like Romans, we understand that Paul is writing to the church. He was writing to believers. He wasn't writing to a, a lost world out there that was trying to make sense of how they are and why they are, why their very nature is the way they are. He's writing to the church, and he's writing to build them up, to admonish them, to strengthen them, and to encourage them, and oftentimes to remind them what they have forgotten. And so this morning I would ask the question, why do Christians sin? And so I put a couple options up there for you to, to, to choose. Uh, and, and you may read through a couple of them. First of all, uh, I can't help myself. I just can't help it, right? Uh, secondly, the temptation is just too much. Uh, C is a good answer for me. The devil makes me do it. I always find that fascinating. I, I find that likewise fascinating when people pray and they bind the devil from something. I'm like, dude, if you can do that, why don't you always do that, right? Like, like what power does the devil have over you if you're binding him in this prayer? Can you, is there like a permanent binding you can put on him? That's just me, maybe. Uh, uh, God's going to forgive me anyway. That's, that's, this, that's this misunderstood grace, right? Like, I'm saved. Get out of hell card is, is, is stamped. Uh, I can do pretty much whatever I want. God's going to forgive me because he said he is, and God didn't lie. Even though I do, God doesn't, so I'm, I'm good. I can tell this lie because I'm forgiven. It's like this pre-forgiveness is already out there, so I have this license to sin, this license uh, to, to be wild because I was born that way. Uh, maybe all the above. Perhaps maybe none of the above. And, of course, the final answer that I really like is I'm not answering this because the pastor is setting it up. I am. And I would actually say that the answers are all of those. But I would also ask you this. Christ follower in your salvation, are you free to sin or free from sin? I want you to think hard about that before you answer this question. Because remember, Paul is already giving an answer to these people before they even ask the question. And then the question, it, it, it sounds... It sounds like there's a matter of semantics that are going on there, but the question just simply is, are you free to sin because grace is abound, or are you free from sin because grace also abounds? And it's one of those concepts that many people actually run away from because they don't know if they are free to sin or if they're free from sin. This morning I want to try to clarify that. And before I do, I think it would be good for us to look at just a couple of terms that I'm going to use this morning so we're kind of on the same page. And first of all, I want us to understand what sin is. We talk about sin a lot in the church, but sin is nothing more than an intentional, rebellious act against God. It is by all means, when God says don't, we say I'm going to do it anyway. It is what God has said that I'm putting parameters around you to keep you safe from yourself and from others, and we do it anyway. We cross those boundaries. Sin is an intentional act, both by non-believers and believers, but I think it's actually more so, as we saw in Romans chapter 1 earlier, that, that sin that is listed in the heart of a believer and is used on display is actually worse because the choice is there knowing that you don't have to do that. The second thing we see is this word called grace, and grace is an oft-misunderstood word. Grace is God's loving and undeserved favor towards sinful humanity. It is, it is that action that God took upon humanity that we did not deserve, but he did so for us anyway because he loves us and knew that on our own we didn't stand a chance. There was nothing we could do, so he not only 
put grace out there for our taking, he demonstrated grace for us on the cross. The third thing that we, that we want to know is the law. And this ought to be a pretty easy one, right? Because we all know the law. The law says when Born to be Wild gets on the radio, you hit the gas. That's the law, right? But the law is, is just simply a prescribed regulations for living. And I think that's really interesting that we would put laws in place to tell us how we can and cannot live or how we should and should not live. And I don't know about you, but what I have noticed about the law in modern times is that there are always people on different sides of the law. And a good lawyer knows how to properly interpret the law based upon what suits them and their client best. Right? I mean, that's the beauty of the law, right? It's interpretive. Whereas God's law is actually pretty absolute. And because it's absolute and I have sin in my life, I create intentional rebellious acts against God's law because I don't want to be told what to do. Therefore, I need grace when I do those things. This other is a big churchy word that's really identified in Romans 6, 7, and 8. That's sanctification. And I, I want us to really kind of hone on this for just a moment to understand that sanctification is the process by which a believer is brought into relationship with God and attains likeness of holiness. This past week, I listened to a, uh, an audible book, not a book on tape. My wife asked me where I got the tapes. An audible book. listen to a book. Did you not catch that part? Like, I, I enriched myself, right? And, and the book was about George Whitfield, who was kind of co-founded uh, with, with John Wesley in the, the foundation of the Methodist Church in the 1730s and 40s. And, and in this book, uh, Wesley is, is basically bringing this ideal of this, this, perf- this, this doctrine of perfection or doctrine of complete sanctification. And what he is arguing is that once I am saved, I have followed Jesus in such a way that I do not sin anymore. And, of course, Whitfield is going, for that, I am really concerned about you because to even make such a statement is, is crazy. What do you mean you don't sin anymore? Is pride not a sin? Because you're demonstrating it now. But sanctification is this process where we're being made more like Jesus, where he is beginning to, to, to take off the rough edges, to change us from the inside out. And it begins at salvation through the acceptance of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and he begins to sanctify us. Jesus would even say, sanctify me with your word, O Lord. He would actually be sanctified and set apart because he was holy. And as God would say, be holy for I am holy, he calls believers to be sanctified by the truth. And it's the truth that not only dwells within us, but actually lives within us, that takes action as we go out. And so this ideal of sanctification actually has a a really interesting theological concept, which is the last one, this already but not yet. And, And where this gets a little sticky is understanding that I am already sanctified through the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. When I accepted him as my Lord and Savior, he has already set me apart. He is making me holy, for he is holy. He's making me to be like him, but I'm not yet fully sanctified until he comes to gather me back and gives me a glorified body. And so Jesus, when he appears to his disciples, is both fully sanctified and glorified because he no longer lived according to the flesh because he has a new body that's given to him. But as long as we still live in the flesh, the true nature's child the sin nature is still within us. And so we will battle as believers back and forth the choices of sin in our lives, and the freedom of the open road is always out there for us, but we will always be in conflict with, that's a great song, but the law says don't speed. And the law is there to protect me from myself, but grace says if I do speed, maybe the judge will be kind to me and give me deferred judication or whatever that that is drivers what is it drivers ed or whatever defensive driving she's been there a couple of times she knows what that is it had to be one of you i knew so now that we've kind of defined those terms let's try to answer some of those questions why do christians sin i mean we would be foolish to say well we don't like our sin nature is different than the sin nature of a non-believer would tell you that you're both right and wrong simultaneously with that statement. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. One of the things, church, I want to tell you that I'm kind of changing a little bit about uh, how I preach and the things that I do is that I'm not going to put a lot of verses up on the, on the screen anymore. 
one of those reasons I think it kind of gets a little distracting. The other reason is you need to open your Bible. And if, you, if I can show you where that is on Sunday morning, perhaps you'll remember on Monday where to go back to that passage. This is a, this is a spiritual discipline and exercise that you need to make regular in your life. Because if you are to be sanctified through a process of which one of the ways by which we are set apart and made to be like Jesus is that we do what he did and he studied the word and he spent time with the Father. And if I'm doing it for you up here on Sunday morning, you're going to be malnourished and I'm going to own some of that. I'm, I'm trying not to own that anymore so that you don't get lazy about that. So in Romans chapter 6, I want us to see that the, the first reason why I think Paul spells out here why Christians sin is because they have not learned what they ought to know. Read with me in the first 10 verses here. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For with, if we have been united with him in death like, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That is perhaps one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture for a believer who finds himself in a place where they think sin rules over them, who finds himself in a place where they pick option C, that the devil makes me do it, or the B, where the temptation was just too much, or maybe even worse, God's going to forgive me anyway. This passage of Scripture spells out very clearly for us. And in those 10 verses, the word no or some ideal, the word no or knowledge is, is, is mentioned four to six times based upon your translation. And in this, Paul is responding to this church that, is, that is, is supposedly believers. He's responding to the question that they don't get a chance to ask. And he says, you know, one of the reasons why you're asking me, where's the line to sin and the line not to sin is because you do not know what you ought to know. You have not studied the word. You have not applied it to your life. You have not gotten to know the basics of your salvation. And I mean the basics of your salvation enough so that sin still rules in your flesh, still rules in your sin nature, because you do not know what true power you have over sin in your life. And if you would know that, so many things would be so much easier, and you guys wouldn't write me letters from asking me dumb questions. Right? And this is what Paul is saying. Is like, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to preemptively get in front of you so that you don't drag your feet and keep sinning knowing you don't have to. And these are some of the things that we see in these first 10 verses. First of all, many think that grace is best understood through immersion therapy. Are you all familiar with this? If, if you've ever learned another language, one of the best ways to learn that language is to immerse yourself in the culture of that language, to drop you in. And the more you're around that, the more you are forced to become like that, engage and interact. You learn to speak the language so you can ask, ¿Dónde está el baños? You, you can ask for another lemonade. You can ask for whatever. You learn some of those necessities get immersed into you, right? And so the, the, the Christian in the church of Rome is writing to Paul and basically asking, well, look, don't we understand God's grace better the more we sin? I mean, I use the Ten Commandments like a checklist, right? I use the Lord's name in vain. I worship idols. I met a prostitute last week. I had sex outside of marriage. I stole something. I lied to something. I even killed somebody. God's grace is amazing, isn't it? And it is that immature faith that would lead us to misunderstand that that type of immersion therapy is not what works. For 
friends, last week one of my pastor friends said something that I've been wrestling with all week. And he says back in the 90s he was challenged by the ideal of culture in the church and how the church engages with culture. And he said very clearly, we will never win the culture war. And I was challenged by that in so many different ways, but I know how right he is. The problem is, is that sometimes we don't try to win the culture war. We try to play within the culture the wrong way. And then we claim grace. The truth is we actually do learn God's grace by immersion, but the ideal is immersion being baptism, being put into the body of Christ, having the Holy Spirit being put into us. The word baptism, and in the early church and in many other churches, they did baptize by immersion because it was very visible. In fact, this is the, the verse we quote whenever we baptize someone, that you now have died with Christ and raised to walk in newness of, of life. But this immersion I'm talking about are the two different ideals of what that word means uh, in regards to baptism. And one is, is being put into or having something put into you. And that when you became a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit was given to you completely and wholly to sanctify you, to be that still small voice, to groan for you and to pray for you, and to understand that as you were put into Christ by the believing of your heart, you were given a helper, a helper to help you deal with the temptation of sin that comes your way. The second thing that baptism means, particularly in this passage, is the ideal of association. When I am baptized, I am forever associated with Jesus. That's why we make it such a big deal in the church to baptize someone. Because what that person is saying, and it goes back to the early times when John was baptizing out in the wilderness, that the only people that were coming to John to be baptized were those who were dirty sinners and they knew it. The self-righteous did not need to be baptized. They saw no reason for that. But it was this ceremonial, this visual, that they would be put into the body of Christ. But likewise, from that day forward, they were forever marked and associated with their baptism. Now, let me ask you this. What does it mean to be associated with Jesus Christ? What does it mean to you as a believer? What it ought to mean is, is simply this. His death, his burial, his resurrection is mine too. All of them. Not just his resurrection. Not just the grace that was poured out upon the church to say, keep on sinning, I'm going to forgive you anyway. What our baptism means is that we have forever stood and said, I am associated with the sinless, perfect Jesus, and I'm being sanctified. I am already sanctified in that he saved me, but I'm not yet fully sanctified because he hasn't come back to get me yet. But when he does, I'm going to be whole and complete. And until that time comes, my sin nature and I are going to continue to battle. But I cannot, as a believer, continue to sin willfully with full knowledge and claim that I'm associated with Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless man. And I don't have to. Catch that. I don't have to. Because when Jesus died, death, hell, and the grave died with him. And if my baptism is associated with him, then guess what has no power over me either? Sin, death, and the grave. So why do Christians sin? Because they don't know who they're really associated with. They don't know that the power of the cross didn't just bring one man back to life, it brings dead men to life. They don't know that their sin is a byproduct of their flesh that is temporary and has no control over you except that which you give it. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 when he wrote to another Henri church, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A believer is dead to sin and alive in Christ. Let me say that again. A believer is dead to sin and alive in Christ. Believers, do you, do you know that? Do, do you know that? I mean, do you fully have an understanding that 
when I associated myself with Jesus, I associated my death and my resurrection with him as well. And the power, the same power that resurrected him will resurrect you. And because that same power resides in me through the helper of the Holy Spirit, sin is dead. Because that's all that sin does, it leads to death. Now when we are given over to the Lord, when we are baptized and associated with and put into and the Holy Spirit is put into us, it's not that the temptation to sin is removed because it's not, because there's nothing greater than watching a self-righteous believer fall off their high horse. The church loves that too, by the way. I just want you to know that because we often celebrate those things in the whispers in the back. It's quite a shame, actually. Likewise, non-believers like to see that same thing too because that's just yet another card for them to lay down and say, see those hypocrites. Church, let me tell you something. The the reason why we're already sanctified but not yet is because we're a work in progress. But we're a new creation that the old creation cannot fully understand. And there's a mystery that is hidden to those who do not know Jesus Christ that causes them not only to ask questions, but to lash out and to continue in intentional acts of rebellion against God, which we call sin. That is actually the nature of an unbeliever. That is who they are. And to expect them to be anything other than that is to expect them to truly be a different person, which they cannot be because they are not associated with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ like we are. But it is likewise the heavier burden for believers to say, you ought to act better. This is not just about being morally purified. This is not just about being a nicer person. This is about someone who fully embraces that one day I too will be resurrected and I will be with Jesus forever. But until then, it is my burden as well to carry that others might know him through my life. I'm associated with Jesus and they're associated with sin that leads to death. about time we realize that we ought to know more and we know more by getting into God's word by spending time in Bible studies by spending time in prayer with other believers Christians continue to sin because they've just taken the cheap grace as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say not realizing the true gift and the true responsibility of that and they put it off to the side and they say God's going to forgive me anyway the good news is, is that in his grace he will bad news is he doesn't have to because those who don't know him aren't associated with him they're not put into him do not have the holy spirit leading them the way they ought to go through the process of sanctification the sin of a believer sends them into deeper parts of hell and damnation it pushes them further away from the cross it pushes them further away from the knowledge that they need salvation why do i need to be saved when you act just like i do What's the difference? The old self, the flesh, and the new self are constantly at odds with one another. And many Christians sin because they don't know that they ought not sin. They do not realize that sin is powerless against them. If you look with me in verse 11, you'll read this, starting in verse 10. For the death he died, being Jesus, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you know that Jesus died once and for all? Do you know that? Do you know there's not a need for him to come back and die again? In fact, it's impossible for him to die again. He is no longer of the flesh. Nothing in this world can take his life. I started to ask the question, and I may just ask it now for the purpose of pondering, but how many times can one man die? You see, I believe, I think a believer can only die once, physically, but spiritually. If I'm a believer, I'm going to be raised to walk in new life. There's no death for me. The scripture speaks of the second death for the unbeliever, and that's the death of the soul. That's the separation completely from God forever. That, to me, is one of the most horrifying realities of what hell will probably be like is it's not going to be the fire and the brimstone and the gnashing of teeth and all that stuff. It's going to be the absence of the presence of the living God completely. And let me tell you something, friends, whether you acknowledge him or not, you know when the most important thing in your entire existence is absent from you, something's wrong. 
it's almost like that quiet from upstairs that parents know when their kids are up there doing something wrong. Magnified times the tenth. You see, if we know that Jesus died once and for all, that doesn't mean that he died for everybody. Now catch that. Hang on with me for just a second. Pastor, I'm a little worried about that comment. What do you mean Jesus didn't die for everybody? I mean, are you a predestinationalist? Or, or you know, are, are you a, a five-point Calvinist? Uh, no and no. It could be four, 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 and eight. I don't find it in this book, so I really don't care. But when I say that Christ didn't die for everyone, what I mean is not everyone's going to accept his death and be associated with him. And so, yes, he did, in fact, die for everyone, but many people will never come to fully know that, or their sin has left them in Romans chapter 1, remember, to a dishonorable pleasure moved down to a depraved mind that they cannot realize how far away they are from God. And so the second reason that we understand is that Christians sin because they really don't live how they really believe. I want you to be challenged by that statement a little bit. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, if you know that Adam brought sin into this world and brought death with it, and you likewise know that Jesus is the solution to death, hell, and the grave, then you know that that's an act of grace that God has poured out to us. But knowledge of that is not the same of belief in that. And belief carries an action with it. Belief says, I believe that to be true, not just universally true, but I believe that to be true in my life, and the way that that is demonstrated is my relationship with sin. I do not let sin rule over me because it has died. Just as Jesus died to that sin for me, I don't have to submit myself to that sin anymore. But because they act in accordance with what they really believe, there's confusion, and we see that all the time. If you really believe that sin was dead, and you were dead to sin and alive in Christ, then why do you keep sinning? Paul's going to answer that, by the way, in the next chapter, to some extent. He had this conversation with Mary and Martha. You might remember this. He had this conversation with Thomas. He had this conversation with many who were healed when they would ask, Lord, heal me of my disbelief. Deal with my disbelief. John chapter 11, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, speaking of her dead brother Lazarus. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, not knows about me, has heard of me, grasp partially the concept of me makes it possible for me to possibly be real he says whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this no because i prefer to believe that grace has a better definition if god's going to forgive me anyway hey we just have to believe Sin is dead. Hey, Christ follower, did you not hear what I just said? Sin is dead. No hallelujah, no amen. Sin is dead because I am alive in Christ. And I don't just know that, I believe that to be true. And I believe that to be true because when temptation comes my way, I can look it right in the face and say, you have no authority over me except that which Jesus Christ himself gives you. And because he is dead to sin and rose and defeated death, I don't have to participate. Depart from me. In the name of Jesus, leave. I'm not a big fan of the proclamation, but I got to tell you something. There's power in the name of Jesus. And the power in the name of Jesus isn't just something I know, it's something I believe because in me he dwells and he is sanctifying me. He is making me more like him because I've 
I choose to know him and know his word. And when I find myself in those situations where sin is trying to kill me or at least kill my witness, I can stand to it and say, no, 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 (laughs) no, I don't believe that this is a better option. I don't believe that the temporary pleasures of of the flesh are for me to enjoy because I'm already forgiven. That's why in verse 11 in Romans 6, we see, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. One of the reasons why Christians continue to sin is because you may know a couple of things, you may have heard a couple of things, but I'm telling you, there's an immaturity that's there that is not compensated with knowledge, by the way. In fact, I would tell you that as a believer, that if you knew only a few things and practiced them well, that that is a far more mature believer than someone who knows a whole lot of things and doesn't practice any of them. We call them professors, academics. Some of the greatest teachings on Christian theology come from atheists, by the way. It's remarkable the truths they have gleaned and can't quite believe and put into action. Whereupon you ask me these questions, well, shouldn't I just keep on sinning because then I understand grace better? I tell you, no, not only should you not keep on sinning, you don't have to because Jesus died for you so that you wouldn't have to. Which leads us to the third point this morning. Christians keep on sinning because they will not submit to Jesus. Man, he's gone for a month and he brings this. You know the story of the scorpion and the turtle? You knew who I was, right? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Okay, so I'm baptized. The Holy Spirit's been put into me. I have died with Christ. I've raised to walk in newness of life. Now the Holy Spirit dwells with me forever. I am already sanctified in a process, but not yet fully sanctified until Christ returns for me. And my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit because I am no longer considered of the flesh because I'm a new creation. The old is gone, a new has come. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, by the way, not something you attained on your own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So therefore glorify God in your body. Nothing about that says grace abounds, so keep sinning because God's going to forgive you anyway. No. Everything about that says that when sin comes my way, when the temptation of sin comes my way, I can stand against it in the name of Jesus because his Holy Spirit dwells within me and he's making me to be more like him. For 40 days in the wilderness, the devil twisted scripture and tempted him. And he was faultless and sinless so that we might live. Our refusal to submit to God is a challenge for us each and every day. And it's made easier when we're in his word. We know what we ought to know, believe what is true according to the scripture, and we submit to God. Look at verse 12 with me in Romans 6. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Man. It's intentional. It is an intelligent act of the the will, of the mind, of the soul to say, I'm going to submit to God, even and especially when I don't understand because he knows better than me. And the reason that I know he knows better than me is because he died and rose again so that I too may do the same. I could not do that on my own and that I believe. And I believe that because he has made himself known to me. And so if he's going to reveal to me the things I ought to know, I need to submit to him because he does know better for me than I know for myself. Because if I did know better for myself, I wouldn't be in this situation. When we know what we ought to know and act consistently, we believe what we ought to believe and we submit to God, it actually makes sense because we know, understand, and practically apply God's word to our lives in every single aspect of it. There is nothing we cannot. But here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. 
Why should we submit to God? After all, we've already been saved. After all, he's going to forgive you anyway. After all, the temptations are still coming. It's not like anything's really changed that much on the outside. After all, if I know Jesus Christ and nobody else has to hear about it, then, you know, I'm still good, right? Look with me in the next couple of verses. Grace sets us free. The undeserved, unmerited favor of God actually sets us free. Many people might think that living under the yoke and the submission of God binds us in such a way, but it sets us free. Look at verses 14 and 15. For sin will have no dominion over you. Man, you ought to write that down on your mirror, underline it, say it to yourself first thing in the morning. Sin will have no dominion over you. Now brush your hair. Since you were not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Again, by no means. Grace says you don't have to sin. Did you catch that? Grace says you don't have to sin. The unmerited favor of God upon his creation says you do not have to sin when you submit to me. You do not have to sin because sin truly is powerless in the lives of a believer. And the reason why we know it's powerless in the lives of a believer is because sin is dead. Do you know that? Do you believe that to be true? And will you submit to the reality that God killed it for you? I mean, that dude's killing it. Do you get that? Grace says you do not have to sin. Through grace, not the law, the believer has power and authority over sin, so use your superpower. The proper way to use grace is not as a license to drive as fast as you want, even though that song is awesome. The proper use of grace is to say, I don't have to violate the law. I likewise don't have to violate sin. I don't have to because I am free through Jesus Christ. The second reason we don't submit is because it is actually the nature of man to submit. So choose the right master. Ah, that's something we probably don't want to embrace. But listen, you submit to things all the time, many of them more willfully than what you might actually embrace. You submit to the authority of something or someone. It is within our sin nature. And since we are already sanctified but not yet, we are still battling the desires of the flesh. But we actually don't have the desire to sin anymore until we're given over to that reprobate mind or that depraved mind. That desire to sin is not what fuels us anymore. In fact, it ought to be the desire not to sin and realizing that we don't have to because grace has abounded in such a way because God killed sin in our lives. But yet we see this, that man's going to submit to something. And it says in verse 16 through 20, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, knowledge, to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You're going to submit to something. It is in your nature to do so. You're going to do so willingly some days, unwillingly other days, and then reluctantly, which is both the willing and the unwilling. You're going to do it. You don't like it. But if you don't believe that Christ died and killed sin in your life, and you don't know that sin is dead to you, and you don't have to submit to it, and that the only power sin has is that by which you give it, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And when we don't submit to God, because it is our nature to submit to something, we're actually told right here that grace presented for us, get this for a second, this is really interesting in our American context, grace presented us a choice. We get to choose whom we submit to. Joshua knew that all too well. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I'm going to cross this river, and I'm going to kill every last one of them because God said so. And I'm tired of walking around in this desert. I'm not doing this again. 
may not often feel like a choice, but it's a choice, isn't it? It's a choice. And we've been set free by submitting to God. John 8 tells us, so if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Do you actually believe that? A believer ought to. Matthew tells us, no one can serve two masters. He'll hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Paul's letter to Timothy says, this is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners whom I am foremost. The authority that Paul writes this to say that sin is dead and we're alive in Christ and that grace abounds because of what Jesus did for us when we didn't deserve it, that we ought to choose righteousness is there for us. And there are days that I know each and every one of us are going to continue to sin. Paul says, I'm the chief among sinners and he forgave me nonetheless. And that doesn't give me license to keep on sinning. It actually ought to drive me to go back to the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and to know that I don't have to do this. Choose to do so. For the unbeliever, verse 20 is perhaps one of the most challenging verses because it actually identifies the true nature's child in every one of us prior to our faith in Jesus Christ. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. There was no righteousness available to you when sin was your master and death was knocking at the door. There was no righteousness in you, and you were not attaining any righteousness at all. And therefore, through God's grace, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ led to his death to sin and his resurrection for each and every one of us so that we might be the righteousness of God. It doesn't say that if you try a little harder, if you try to sin a little bit less, if you somehow get to Wesley's ideal of of this uh, doctrine of complete sanctification or perfection, that you will receive the righteousness of God. You will not, you cannot outside of him. You can't just know about him, you need to know him. You need to know what he did for you. You need to be reminded that none is righteous, no, not one. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The third reason why we fail to submit is that we miss out on the reality that we're commanded to bear fruit. Perhaps one of the most challenging, misunderstood verses, in my opinion, in all of chapter 6 is verse 23. Start with me in verse 21. Paul, again, is addressing the church. They're trying to find a a way, perhaps, maybe to keep on sinning. And he says, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What did your sinful life give to you? What did you really earn from that? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me tell you something. Every master pays his servant a wage of some sort. It may be a beating. It may be housing and provision. It may be a few shekels here. It may be whatever. Whatever you submit to is going to reward you in its own kind. And sin, when you submit to that, will reward you with death. And what Paul is writing to believers, that the wages of your sin leads to death. And I think a challenging part for them is to understand, well, wait a minute. I'm already saved, but not yet. Can I lose my salvation? I would tell you I don't believe that. But I think what Paul is really saying when he's writing to the church is he's saying that you may not lose your salvation and grace will truly abound, but other people will go to a godless eternity because of your actions, because of your apathy, because you don't know what you ought to know, because you don't submit to God alone. And he's saying that everyone who submits to sin will receive their wages, and those wages are death. And likewise, if we were to back up a little bit further, and if I asked you if you truly believe that, then you might question it again, why do I keep on sinning? Do you believe that sin leads to death or not? And you ought to. Because if sin does not lead to death, then how did Jesus die for you? What was the purpose of his resurrection? It was to demonstrate to you that, yes, sin leads to death, but in righteousness... Through his grace, he rose for us. We may not have been born to be wild like all of us were. That true nature's child is running around in us, but through Christ we're actually reborn to rule and to reign in his kingdom forever. 
we're a royal priesthood. And under God's authority alone, we do not have to sin. 1 Peter 2, we're reminded that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. To be dead to sin and alive in Christ means that we have to know, we have to believe, we have to submit to God. It is actually kind of a shame that Paul is writing this letter to the church, and here we are today still finding the same applications. So why do Christians sin? Because Christ suffered in the flesh for us. Therefore, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Was to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. I would say that sin is your master if you find yourself habitually in it. Perhaps maybe you haven't fully come to know what Christ has done for you. And so as a believer, you got to come to that place and you have to know Christ died for my sins and he rose against that I might have eternal life. And if I believed that, I would approach all kinds of things differently. I'll end this morning by a simple statement that Christ made twice in Scripture. Once to the woman who was caught in adultery, another time to a blind man that he restored his sight. And in both instances, Jesus said to them simply, go and sin no more. Oft misunderstood, we look at that as if Jesus says that you are incapable of sinning anymore, or that you won't sin anymore, or that temptation will always avoid you going this day forward, but that's not the case. What Jesus was actually saying is, is that if you believe in me and in my resurrection, and you believe in my Father as well, go and sin no more because you don't have to. I died so that you wouldn't have to do that anymore. The only power sin has over us is that by which we give it, that which we submit to it. And if we would know what Christ really did for us, be reminded of that daily, then maybe, just maybe, the temptation to sin would be a smaller part of our life because the victory is so much better through Jesus Christ. I pray you know that. I don't know if the Roman church ever quite got there. Some of them did, perhaps. And so as we close this morning, I just encourage you to go and sin no more. You don't have to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opening of your word. Father, sin is dead. And because sin is dead, I am alive in Christ. And Lord, when I know that sin is dead because of what Christ did for me, there is no need for him to ever do it again. Just as sin came into the world through one man, salvation came in through one man, Jesus Christ. And he did that to set me free. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. And so, Father, I pray as believers that we would celebrate our freedom, not to sin, but from sin. Not in sin, but over sin. And that we are free to live our lives, Lord, in glory and honor to you because we are being made like you. Father, I likewise pray that we would come to a place of repentance.